Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. Today we're going to go through Ask Me Anything number seven. Got a lot of great questions from Corey Hobbs, my boy Breakaway Ben Anderson. I got a really good question from an aspiring strength conditioning coach. And then I got a, a good question, and hopefully I answered it in the right way, about what is force and what is deceleration. So a lot of different areas I dived into. Hope all of that stuff is really helping and resonating. As always, head over to phpodcast.com to check out the modules because a lot of those answers are probably in there. And then stay tuned. Strength Deficit, the book is coming. It is in final edits. Could be ready for pre-order here any day now. And we're stoked to get that out to the world. So hope you guys are enjoy and we'll see you guys on the other side. So we're going to get into the seventh Ask Me Anything, which I'm pretty excited on because we got a couple uh, really good questions on. So I'm going to dive right into it. So based off the recent debate I did with Pat Davidson, Corey Hobbs asked about, can I define good and bad foods? And I think it's a really good question. And, And the context behind the question was, can we really say there's a good and bad exercise? Can we really say there's a good and bad food? And in my perspective, in my opinion, I would say yes. An exercise with someone that quite frankly has pain or dysfunction or is incapable of doing it at a high level is a bad exercise. And I think this is why screening and looking at certain things are really important to determine what is good and bad, right? We know if someone has a herniated disc and I'm axial loading them, that could be at a higher risk than doing something without axial loading. I'm not saying we can't, we don't want to improve someone's strength or we don't want to improve someone's physical qualities like strength, power, or duration of some sort of activity, but we can choose better exercise. And I think the same thing with food, right? So from just a very broad general rules perspective, we know that foods with high fructose corn syrup have a higher degree of risk for increasing someone's potential to get metabolic syndrome, right? So this, this multivariate, broad scope classification for someone with some sort of metabolic derangement, whether they have insulin dysregulation, either they're not producing enough or they're not utilizing enough. They have some sort of autoimmunity in terms of excess level of information. They could say that certain things like Alzheimer's or dementia are actually classified as type three diabetes as long-term glycation of certain neurons and certain neuronal cells that create this problem with memory and dopamine receptor, Parkinson's, all these other things over time start to decay and start to break down because we start to include foods that are higher risk over a period of time. The other one would be hydrogenated oils, vegetable oils, things that are really not designed to be cooked at a high temperature or eaten in a copious amounts. And what this does is created a high level omega-6 fatty acids within the diet, as well as a bunch of oxidized oils that create a lot of inflammation and oxidation throughout the body. And what this does is leads to excess levels of adipose tissue, GLUT4 dysregulation, so we don't utilize insulin as well, IGF-1 underproduction, offset hormones, whole bunch of cascade of things that over time really start to create problems. So from a general perspective, when you're talking to someone, bad foods, high fructose corn syrup, hydrogenated oils or vegetable oils cooked at high temperatures are bad. Like, we know that. That's not a debate. That's something that's unequivocally true. We've now have 100 years of data to prove that. That the rapid rise in metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease is 100% correlated to either excess calories, so keto, yes, that's part of it, 
being sedentary, yes, that's being part of it, but the inclusion of hydrogenated oils and high fructose corn syrup. That has gone up exponentially in the last 50 years since agriculture arbitrarily decided that corn should be the primary product in the Midwest as a counterproduct to potentially something like wheat or soy. So we now have a huge epidemic of obesity and metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular syndrome. And we could relate it to excess excess calories from low nutrient density foods, being sedentary, and then problematic foods like hydrogenated oils and high, high fructose corn syrup. But I would take it another step further, right? So we start to look at, okay, potentially we get their blood work. We start to see they have high cholesterol. We start to see they have low testosterone. We start to see that they have certain immune markers like high monocytes, isophils, basophils. We start to look at interleukin-6. We start to look at C-reactive proteins. We start to look at all these immune markers which generally speaking, you're having some sort of autoimmune response or immune system dysfunction directly related to things that you're doing redundantly. We can say exercise and stress is a part of it. Sleep deprivation is part of it. Poor quality sleep is a part of it. Being around in toxic environments, high pollution, high electromagnetic frequencies, high amounts of blue light, all lead to downstream effects. But we can also say, as the old adage goes, food is thy medicine. And the difference between a poison and the antidote is the amount is eating autoimmune inducing foods becomes problematic. And you can go on this whole thing about, well, potentially autoimmunity is a, is, is a gross misconception and that, you know, that this whole, Hey, people don't have gluten sensitivity. They're not, they're not allergic to gluten. Well, I can go back and say that they're not allergic to squats, but over time squats might be problematic in terms of orthopedic function that we've created enough stress and enough structural imbalance that eventually we start to get tendinopathies and we start to see orthopedic related injuries. The difference between the a poison and the antidote is the amount. So if I eat enough gluten over a period of my time and if I have high stress, I'm living in toxic environments, I'm sleep deprived and my immune system is compromised, we start to develop leaky gut and we start to develop some other downstream effects that creates problems when we have hard to digest proteins like gluten or gliadin enter the system and they enter the body and create autoimmune response. And we start to see this as a feedback loop of furthering the problem with things like downstream effects like more autoimmunity. We start to develop things like osteoarthritis. We start to develop things like overall general inflammatory problems, which might lead further down the road into inflammatory diseases like metabolic syndrome. So when we're looking at it from the good and bad food perspective, Unequivocally, we can say high fructose corn syrup and vegetable oils are bad. Like those should be omitted immediately. There's no fundamental reason as to why we should eat those. Calories in, calories out, yes. But the other aspect is why wouldn't we try to get higher quality calories if we could try to consume that? Just like we're trying to get better exercises. If we know someone has asymmetries, restrictions, range of motion, and or pain, and we're going to do a certain exercise that doesn't account for that, I can make that more problematic. I want to choose a better exercise. If I know people have some sort of response where they're at risk for metabolic syndrome or cardiovascular disease, and I'm saying that calories in, calories out is the only thing that matters, and I'm letting them eat high fructose corn syrup, if all they drank was just alcohol, what would you think be the outcome? Would they start to have liver failure? Yes. If it's all about Kiko, then what does it really the point of even trying to say don't drink just alcohol all day? It's not that. Obviously, we know more. And the macros, the fit your macros approach has problems over time. 
that we need to be more conscientious. If someone's counting their calories and their macronutrients, don't be afraid to tell them to go one step further and say you should get higher quality food, more nutrient-dense food, food that has a lot better upside and a lot less downside, that I want to be positive as opposed to negative with this overall approach of understanding the first law of thermodynamics, calories in, calories out, and then understanding that we can be amplified in that approach by timing and counting and manipulating certain macronutrient amount with higher quality nutritional foods that don't cause autoimmunity. We see this time and time again with bodybuilders, right? They have high cholesterol. They start to become insulinic. We see this with endurance athletes. They start to become pre-diabetic, if not diabetic. They start to have high H1AC, start to have high fasting blood glucose, and then they all of a sudden they become diabetic at a better, very low body mass because all that you do is eat high fructose corn syrups or very, very high calorically dense foods to accommodate their energy expenditure. So we can use them as platforms as to say that there is consequences for only being calories in, calories out, or fit your macros. That why not take it just that little step further? Why not screen them and find the best exercise to meet the tools, meet the, the, meet the demands of that person's goals, orthopedically and physiologically? That's all I think we should think about in terms of, okay, we're doing inputs. Inputs matter. The quality of that input matters. The quality of that intervention and the way we go through that and the, and the consistency which we go through that matters. Let's just say from an original construct that there is a downstream effect and a negative effect if we have just a short-sighted approach when it comes to good and birth cat bad calories. And then Corey asked a really good question um, on top of that one in regards to what is the best advice I've ever received? Um, you know, to be honest, I, you know, I, I think this is a one that I can go a lot of different directions. Right. And, you know, I think the best advice I ever really would ever get is probably from my own, my father of just being patient and, you know, letting me learn through mistakes um, you know, what did you learn kind of thing? Uh, but I would say my first internship with Georgia Tech and Eric Ciano, who's a head strength coach, my first day, and he knew I was exposed to a lot of high level stuff and I was really interested in this. And what he said to me was, hey, I'm sure there's gonna be things that you disagree with. There's some things that you don't like. There's some things you'd do differently. What I would tell you is get a notebook, write that down, and then when you're in charge, either do it differently or don't do it the way I did it. And I thought that was a really poignant and very important thing to hear at that point in my life because it really resonated with the idea of me knowing that I was exposed to a lot of things but not really seeing the big picture of how it may or may not apply. And as I've gone through my career, I thought a lot about that line. And I, I want to be two parts. I want to be progressive, but I also want to be responsible with what I do. And I want to make sure that what I do is effective and impactful but I don't want to limit myself to what I've already done or what I currently know and what I do going forward. Uh, so having this balance between, all right, now that I kind of am in, in charge in some degree, you know, I want to be responsible with, okay, I don't want to limit what I'm doing to what I've already known or what I kind of want to, I kind of always wanted or I've always done in the first place with the next step of trying to really match and balance out with what is actually practical. So uh, that was probably the best advice I've ever heard, um, but I would miss to say that, you know, um, my father is probably the best example to follow after, um, if that makes any difference. All right, uh, then I got a, uh, a really interesting one in regards to, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce his Instagram handle, but Omniland88, does forced deceleration really exist? Uh, 
I don't really know how to answer this, so I'm going to kind of go in a bunch of different ways, and hopefully this gives some sort of clarity. Uh, so I would say potentially the need to learn how to decelerate is important. Uh, yes. So if we're looking at it from a sprint mechanic, do we know how to lower our center of gravity and to create leverage or mechanical position where we can decelerate orthopedically to the forces exposed on the body effectively? Yes, absolutely. Right. Do I know how to transition my center of mass either down or back reverse opposite direction that I'm going? Absolutely. Yes, we should definitively know how to do that. And I think that's a trainable quality. And I think as we start to look at what we're doing from progressions and speed and change of direction, we should definitively have something in place to position our body from a from a biomechanics standpoint to decelerate effectively and efficiently. And one of the things I think is important to know is that it's not always going to zero velocity. You know, one of the areas that we talk about a lot with athletic development models is this idea that not everything has to come to zero velocity and then focus so much on acceleration. That if I can change direction without lowering velocity as much as I do to zero, then I should at least think about utilizing that strategy. And the difference being, one being a power cut, we're getting to zero, zero, zero velocity, meaning that I stop completely and I redirect. Hopefully it's a brief, short period of time, much like we do during a counter movement jump, that as I decelerate down into the jump, that I have some sort of amortization phase, and then I create a counter movement in the opposite direction. But there is a point, and hopefully it's fractional, that there's a zero, to zero velocity. As opposed to, okay, well let's look at a speed cut where I'm changing direction, and I slow my velocity to a, hopefully a lesser degree, but I lower the velocity to a degree that actually can reposition and change direction and move in that direction. So one being zero velocity, the other one being very nominal drop in velocity, both redirecting in some opposite direction. Now, in terms of the forces that go into that, why we put so much stock, or I do, in terms of force play, is looking at a lot of different metrics. You can look at the depth, you look at the rate of depth, you can look at the eccentric peak force, you can look at something like RSI, which is the time you spent on the ground versus time in the air. So the higher the number, the less time you're on the ground, the more time in your air. We can look at something like impulse, which is defined simply as the time under the curve, before peak force, rate of force, and duration of force which if we're looking at it, we wanna really push the peak force and the duration of force to its highest degree. And this is a shameless plug here, but this is a really big central theme as to you know, what strength deficit really is, is understanding that eccentric forces have a little bit more weight for people who have to rely on speed cutting or be better in open spaces, relatively speaking to people in more confined closed spaces, they have to be more concentrically oriented. That the forces that go eccentrically are just a little bit different based off of what the activity or the task of that person is doing. So if I'm looking at this objectively and I'm saying that that person that needs to decelerate is going to be relative to the demands of the person going through with it. So if I have a person playing wide receiver and they're doing a route where they're getting down to a very, very high, or they're getting up to a very high velocity and then getting down to a very low velocity in a very quick manner, that's a huge eccentric force. That means that they have to be really eccentrically strong. So if I was going to look at this from the context of if I want to develop that athlete, I need to develop eccentric strength. 
versus the person working in a closed space, then yeah, I want to really focus on developing concentric and then leveraging whatever eccentric strength to diminish, not diminish the value I can get from concentric or just pure strength levels or impulse for that athlete to be successful. So I hope that answers your session, that question. Biomechanics, yes, we should have that in place. And there's difference for linear, for multi-directional, from a, uh, from a physics standpoint, we should understand that forces acting on the body are really important to appreciate relative to the task at hand. So I think that kind of goes in that direction you wanted me to go. Hopefully it does. Uh, so next question I got is from Justin Thompson. What is our 24, what is my 24 RM on front squat? Uh, so for my Poliquin guys out there, who say that you should never go above six on front squat because the rhomboids can't handle that that much duration. Uh, I I don't know how to answer that. Um, I would be honest. I think that's kind of a farce, to be completely frank. I think you can do 24 reps on front squat. Um, you see this time and time again. Um, I would come back and say, though, too, of, of – what is a rate limiting step? It's definitely not rhomboids. I would say it's probably range of motion or fatigue of the lats. Um, just general overall, like can what is your mechanics? So, so people who have a very hingy squat, meaning that they shoot their hips back and drop their torso, are going to really struggle with anything above six reps, and it's going to put a lot of strain in terms of flexion of the shoulder and then um, not keeping tension on the quadriceps. Um, so fix your mechanics, and then you'll find your rhomboids are going to be just fine. But my 24RM on front squat, I believe I hit, when we did 6, 12, 24, I think I hit 75. I think that's my 24RM, I believe. Um, and for also for my Poliquin guys out there, what is 6, 12, 25? Like, it doesn't make sense, right? Like, if I'm looking at this from the perspective, I'm trying to figure out why we went from 6 to 12. That makes sense. Multiply it by 2. Then I go from 12 to 25. What is that math? That's not a Fibonacci sequence or something where it actually makes sense. There's no rhyme or reason to that. Should I do... Should I do six, 12 and a half, and then 25? The math just doesn't make sense. Why not just do 24? What's the difference of one rep? Like, what, what, like at what point past 15 reps is it that exact that you need to be 25 reps? I never made sense to me. Um, so Justin, I hope that answers your question. 75 to 80, somewhere in that range. God knows what I can do now. I'm not what I once was, but I'm different in a lot of ways, and maybe they're potentially better. So, um, But that was a really good – that was a long time ago, and uh, God knows what I can do now. What my motivation to do 24 reps on front squat would be anyway. All right, and then uh, my guy, Breakaway, Ben Anderson, asked about prep for muscle mentorship. Um, we have a program available for you. Uh, so it's on there for the prep program on Bridge. So I would just do that. Um, and then for the information – uh, muscle mentorship slack that's been going um, we had a mastermind group which actually just ended uh, that was available for everyone to go through the lectures ahead of time uh, but yeah that was um, in there as well um, so hopefully that answered your question hopefully you're getting ready it's going to be a lot Rob Jacobs and I are really going back and forth and I'm really stoked on this last one ever so um, I appreciate everyone who signed up and I think this is going to be a really special event all right, and then the last question I got is from a young and aspiring coach. Uh, she was looking to just get into strength and conditioning. So I would preface this the same way I would develop someone from an athletic performance standpoint is the same way I would tell someone from a, a career progression standpoint. 
what is your goal? What is your aspirations? And then reverse engineer the process from that. Right? We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. We all have access to certain networks or access to certain groups that might help amplify that or slow that down. Uh, we all have different strengths from a from a performance standpoint, like a really in-depth knowledge of nutrition or physiology or biomechanics. I have a really good presence in front of people that have a great public speaker that I'm really confident in front of groups or with athletes. We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. So in regards to that, you just basically look at through that. But it starts with where you want to be. Do you want to work in the team setting? Okay. Okay. That's going to take a lot of different skills. It's going to take a very multitude of skills. But the most important aspect is going to take you access to a certain network. Uh, let's just not, let's not lie about what strength conditioning and team setting really is. It's about being connected to the right people at the right time in their career. So you can kind of ride the coattails and hopefully ride that wave to a job that you want. Your skill set and your knowledge, and this kind of goes into the whole adage of luck is when op when preparation meets opportunity. So learn as much as you possibly can, be as prepared as you possibly can, but when that time comes, you better hope that you're ready because you don't know when it's going to come. And I always look at it very analogous to like you know finding a, a partner of you know when you're really searching really hard you're probably never going to get anyone's interest it's when you stop looking that person kind of just emerges same thing with jobs if you just focus on your day-to-day -day, you're working hard at your current place whether it's an internship or a graduate assistant an apprenticeship or just a a, a low-level assistant job that's when the opportunities start to become um you just focus on what you can control really is the message but then the other side of it is we want to work in the private sector where your skill set, your knowledge, or your ability to sell what you do is what really makes a difference. And I would just simply look at it from, as you're going through this podcast, if you're going through the modules, and you're looking at, I really don't have a lot of depth of knowledge of that, start here. Um, shameless plug, get on PH Podcast, go to the website, sign up for the membership. There's 50 modules to dive into, and hopefully it's Pandora's box in regards to, not only do you have principles, practical, case study, and a an in-depth insight into what a other person in the field with a lot of experience would do in that situation. You have all these resources below it. And there's a forum to be able to ask any question you want. And then we have access to debates and things that I think are going to be really helpful for your process. Uh, and that can kind of be a great litmus for what you need to work on. So if you have some, some really, really strong skill sets or knowledge of certain areas, you don't have to spend a lot of time there. But becoming more well-rounded and more versed in areas that you're not as skilled or knowledgeable in, that could be a really good asset to dive into as well. So bottom line, if you want to get into the field, start at the end, do a strength and, strength and, uh, a strength and weaknesses assessment, look at your network, look at the areas that you need to prove upon, and then the, just work hard. Work really hard, put your nose down and just go. You know, like go, like go and go and go until you get what you think is what you want. And then when you get that, don't come complacent don't get buyer's remorse. Keep the same approach that got you there and keep pushing forward. That's the difference. That a job's not made, supposed to make you happy. That you're not going to get this certain sense of fulfillment from a job that you don't currently have. You are responsible for that. So when you do work hard and you do accomplish something, that understanding that that was never the goal. The goal was to work hard. The goal was to find something that you wanted to work hard in. There's no arbitrary marker of success or performance that you reached. It is what it is. 
the process is what really is the, is the whole point of the goal. So I hope that makes sense. Really appreciate everyone's questions. I appreciate everyone's time um, going through this podcast. I uh, I hope uh, this stuff is helping. I hope everyone out there is uh, just getting through this. That I really appreciate everyone's um, insight um, and questions that they may have for me. Um, stay tuned. We got a lot of great stuff coming down the pipeline. We're going to get some more debates on there. The modules keep kind of growing and advancing. And then strength deficit. The book is coming. It is with the editors. Just working through a couple different images and graphics and then formatting, but. Should be ready to go here very shortly. So stay tuned for that. Pre-order both on the website and through Amazon. So we're really stoked on that. And uh, again, thank you everybody for the support. And uh, we'll see you guys next week.